You may be seated, and as you do, please uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, and then you hit Romans, if you get First and Second Corinthians in that old school Bible with pages, go back to the left. Uh, my name is Jason, I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we are continuing in this uh, series here in this great letter, uh, Romans, and we are getting to chapter... 11 today and that's that's awesome that's awesome that we are in this particular book in this particular moment in the life of our church and in particular life of each of our different families and situations that we're in because it focuses on something that i think that we uh think about a lot but maybe are not as mindful of as we could be and so i think the scriptures especially as we navigate them in a slow fashion slow us down and they make us consider things that perhaps we otherwise wouldn't. I know that's true in my own heart, my own study, and today we'll consider this idea of grace. Gr grace is really interesting because grace is sort of universally attractive, um, yet I wonder if you've noticed grace is also really hard to trust. Grace, grace is unsettling to us in one way of thinking about it, and I think it's because it exposes us to meaningful risk. There's something that feels very risky about grace. See, the opposite of a society that's built on grace is a meritocracy. Meritocracy is that it runs on transactions. And a transactional relationship of, of any different kind, whether in business or in our social life or in religion, is really clear. The rules are clear. How we do them is clear. It's based on performance and payment. If you perform, you will get paid. If you don't perform, you will not get paid. While on the other hand, unmerited love and kindness seems too good to be true. It's, it's unsettling. See, the nature of grace that makes it really hard for Paul's Jewish readers in particular to accept his message. This is what they are wrestling with. That's what makes, I think, it very hard for us as well. See, grace is almost universally attractive, yet it is wildly uncomfortable and unsettling. Let's think about it. When we give grace to someone, we fear that someone will take advantage of our generosity. I know this is particularly true with my children. I know if I don't delve out or dole out consequence, they're going to be like, this is just, this is what we do. This is how we get away with stuff. We just do crazy, whatever we want, and then dad will just say, I love you, grace, gospel, all of that, and we get to do what we want. I don't trust grace. I think giving grace will lead to me being made a fool of. Or when we receive grace, we fear that there's a hidden motive behind it, or that it's coercive. We feel sometimes even unworthy, like we haven't earned it, and so we can't enjoy it the way that we think that we would if we actually did the hard work to get whatever it is that we have received by grace. And thirdly, when we see someone else get grace, it's also unsettling, isn't it? We, we fear that we're losing blessing, or perhaps we get jealous or feel overlooked. So no matter if we are giving it, receiving it, or watching someone else get it, grace unsettles us. We're not quite at home with it, even though we are universally almost attracted to it. There's a lot of fear wrapped up in our relationship with grace, I think is what I'm getting at. But we're still drawn to it. And I'd like to talk about that today. I'd like to talk about the way we are drawn to something that is so unsettling. The way we long for something we're not actually quite sure about. That is a little bit uncomfortable to us. Because isn't it true? Transactional spirituality or religion, really comfortable. 
really clear. It's a lot more comfortable than grace. Moralism, the belief that doing good gets you good, I'm comfortable with that. That makes sense to me. I can live within those rules. It feels clean. It feels calculated. Grace, though, unmerited love turns our world on its ear. I don't know what to do with that. This is what Paul's Jewish readers are wrestling with throughout, especially in chapters 9 through 11 that we've been exploring the past couple of months. And now here in Romans 11 verses 1 through 6, what Paul does here is I think he zeroes in on that unsettledness. He zeroes in on what it is that is so unnerving to us about grace. And he does so, and as he does so rather, I think it reveals our own discomfort. So so think about it this way. As Paul is going to expose the discomfort and the unsettledness of his Jewish readers, a lot of us in this room are going to be going, oh, that's what happens to me when I get close to grace. And that's my hope as we navigate this. What, What I desire to do, what I want to talk about, is how do we mend our relationship with grace? First, we've got to admit that you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable with grace, because usually Christians like, love grace, it's awesome, and then we actually interact with grace, and it's like, I have no idea what to do, I'm really uncomfortable, it seems really messy, right? So to help mend that relationship, I'd like to organize our time this way. First, we'll look at the authenticity of grace, then we'll look at the exposure of grace, in other words, what it reveals about us, and then we'll look at the incarnation of grace. So the authenticity, the exposure, and the incarnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, If we're going to make any sense of your word, we need your spirit. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to know the mind of God without you, our gracious and loving God, saying, here's who I am. Here's what I am like. Here's what I do. And so we pray that your spirit would majestically and miraculously illuminate the scriptures to us. Because many of us fancy ourselves as really smart people, and yet trying to make sense of your word beyond what is plain to the eye is impossible without you. And even that prospect is really uncomfortable, if we're honest. Because it means some things in our life that seem really tidy and in in our control, you are going to reveal, you are going to expose, and you are going to correct us in. And yet also the converse is true. The places where we feel undone and out of control and fearful and shame, you're going to bring peace. You're going to settle us. You're going to love us. And so I pray for myself and my friends that often we can build defenses up as you are about to speak to us because we don't want to hear it because we're scared. Or perhaps because we're unfamiliar with this process. It's been a long time since we've sat under your word. I love how loving you are, how you speak to us in gentleness and clarity. And so we're simply asking you to be God and that you would help us be your people, to be humans that you've created to reflect your image. Help us to be sensitive, help us to be responsive, help us to be thankful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul opens up this new chapter with yet another question. If you remember, this is what Paul has been doing a lot. He has been supposing, or he has been presuming, anticipating a question or objection, particularly from his Jewish readers. He's been raising these questions and then responding to them in order to teach us more and more about this gospel 
of grace. And in this case, Paul has just explained that many Hebrew people, many religious people, the chosen people of God, have not believed in Jesus. They did not believe that he is the Messiah. They have rejected this gospel of grace. They had knowledge, if you remember, and understanding of God's law, but they did not believe in the gospel. Remember, we looked at last week that knowledge and understanding can be a bit deceptive. They can make us feel like we are in the middle of God's will when really we are just grounded in our own morality. We are, we are settled in our own righteousness. So they didn't think ultimately that Jesus was the Messiah. And the apostle quotes God's own words in Romans 10 verse 21. He says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, God extended grace but Israel rejected the good news. So Paul wonders now in chapter 11, so did God reject his people? If not all Israel has been saved, then God must have rejected his people, right? This is the sort of surmise that Paul is now raising along, perhaps of, of supposing what his Jewish readers are thinking. And that's where we pick it up here in chapter 11. And actually, I think the question is deeper. The question that Paul is asking and the question he is supposing his readers are asking is deeper than that. I think what he's really asking is, is grace real? Is grace authentic? Is it trustworthy? You see, the nature of the Jewish heir centers on their reception of grace. In particular, the inclusion of Gentiles who were welcomed into God's family without the law. In other words, they're welcomed in a way that I don't think I was welcomed. See, Jewish people think they're welcome to the family of God because they've got the law, they follow the law, they love the law. And so now they're starting to see brothers and sisters, varsity, two hands raised on Sunday, and they go, wait, that's a Gentile, didn't have the law. It seems like they love you and you love them the same. I don't get that. Are you tracking with me? This is who's gathering in the church in first century Rome. See, this is directly opposed to what they believed in, this spiritual meritocracy or this earning of the righteousness and pleasure of God. So, the question that may be in their mind is, has God rejected his people? Is grace really real? And what we'll notice, like a good preacher, Paul answers this question in three different ways. He answers it personally, theologically, and historically. It was a joke about preaching. Not all preachers have to do three points in a poem, okay? But it's helpful. First, Paul answers it personally. Look at verse 1. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask you then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. In other words, Paul is saying God could not have rejected his people. Why? Because I'm his people, and he didn't reject me. So he's using himself as a living illustration, if you will, to answer this question. Is grace real? Yes, Paul says, I've experienced it. He hasn't rejected his people. I'm his people. I'm part of his family. So he answers it personally. Then he answers it theologically. Look at verse 2. This is the very beginning part. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, the foreknowledge of God is much more than God simply looking into the future and seeing what's going to happen. God is not a passive observer of the future. He controls all things. He brings all things together according to the counsel of his will, the scriptures teach us. But it's particularly clear in verse 5 that foreknowledge presumes choice. So remember back in Romans 8, 29, when Paul said, those whom God foreknew, he also what? Predestined. What's Paul saying? Well, we can be assured that God has not rejected his people. Why? Because of God. Because he doesn't do that, because of his character, because of his nature. That's why I say it's a theological answer. He's not just basing it personally now, he's basing it on doctrine, on theology, on who God is. He's, he has predestined those he foreknews, he calls, and he keeps. 
God did not foreknow people, in other words, who worked their way to righteousness. He foreknew those he chose by grace. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning, that the God who called you is the God who keeps you. He does not call you by grace, and then he keeps you by your merit. The one who calls you by grace is the one who keeps you by grace, not because of you, but because of him. So you see, Paul is answering that theologically. Is grace real? Yes, that's who God is. Thirdly, he answers it historically. Personally, theologically, and historically. Look at the latter half of verse 2 on into verse 4. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul goes to this particular moment in Hebrew history when Elijah was a prophet of God's people who wanted God to reject his people. He's literally asking, God, have you seen all that they have done? I think you should reject them. You should be done with them now. And God says what? No. I won't reject my people. I've kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so the question then historically, is grace real? Yes, that's who God has always been since the days of Elijah. That's what God has always done. So Paul answers it personally. Grace is real, or rather God has not rejected his people because I'm his people. He didn't reject me. He answers it theologically. This is who God is. God doesn't reject those whom he foreknew, who he chose, who he keeps by his grace. Thirdly, historically, you, you go to the deep cut, 1 Kings 19, go back to Elijah. He did not reject his people, even when the prophet said that'd probably be a good idea. This is not what God has done. This is not who God is. So no matter what angle, this is really good news for us, no matter what angle you come at grace, it's clear, it's real, it's authentic, it is faithful. God and his grace is faithful and has integrity. So the authenticity of grace is demonstrated when you zoom in personally. When you zoom out theologically, and when you look back historically, grace, grace, grace. And it's looking back. We should take a little bit more time because I think it's really interesting, the story that Paul decides to go back to, to prove that grace is real. And it's also really helpful because many of us perhaps grew up in a context or even have a consciousness that grace is like this new idea that Jesus comes up with, that the Son of God comes up with in the New Testament right? That the God of grace, or rather the God of wrath and judgment, sort of dissipates in the old, and the God of grace and love comes in in the new. But I love that to prove grace, Paul goes to the Old Testament. He wants to show us grace. So the authenticity of grace teaches us that grace persists in all of these different forms, personally, theologically, historically. You can trust it. But as we look back in history to a historical moment of grace, we'll see also that grace exposes something. So we've looked at the authenticity of grace, and now we'll consider the exposure of grace. That something unexpected, I think deep within the human heart, is exposed when we get close to grace. And I think this is why grace is so unsettling, whether we're giving it, receiving it, or just seeing it unfold. And the place that Paul goes is about a thousand years before Christ. It's really a confusing and very unfortunate time in Jewish history. A guy named Ahab was king over Israel. And the writer of Kings tells us that Ahab provoked the Lord's anger more than any other king had ever provoked the Lord's anger. So I'd like to suggest to you, this is not a very good king. This is not a very good season in the life of the monarchy of God's people. And during this time, a man named Elijah is the prophet over Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, a prophet is not necessarily someone who tells the future. Rather, it is, it is a liaison, if you will. 
A prophet is one who speaks on behalf of the people to God and speaks to God on behalf of the people. And so Paul gives us a slice of this relationship between Elijah and God during this tumultuous time as he quotes this particular passage in Romans 11. And that passage is 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 14. And I think in order to understand why Paul has used that passage, we should immerse ourselves in this fantastic story. We should understand why is it that he goes there and plucks out this quote from Elijah. It'll be good for our souls. Elijah was running for his life. He was running for his life because he had just confronted Ahab about the evil in his heart and about the evil in God's people. And this leads to this epic showdown, right, between Elijah, the prophet of God, and over 800 prophets of Baal and Asherah, a couple of Canaanite gods that God's people had begun to sort of worship and serve and to begin to engraft into their spiritual worldview. They all met at this place called Mount Carmel, and each prophet was tasked to call down their god to bring fire to the altar. To, to consume this offer. That's in 1 Kings 18. They call Baal over and over again, and Elijah calls Yahweh. Spoiler alert, Yahweh wins, brings fire from heaven, laps up all of the water. It is crazy. Elijah responds by slaughtering all of the prophets of Baal. You should really read it sometime. It's a wonderful story. But when Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel, finds out about all of this, she is, she's not very happy. Um, she puts a hit notice on Elijah. She says, this guy needs to die by this time tomorrow. And so she sends a hit out in his life, and all these people start chasing him to kill him, and Elijah runs for his life. Ironically, the next day, Elijah finds a tree, and under that tree, he asks God to kill him. Now, we should not quickly blaze past this. Elijah is so undone by what he is experiencing that he believes not only could I ask God to take my life, but it would be better if he did. Many of you are familiar with that feeling. Many of you are familiar with the, the feeling, the weight that Elijah must be feeling in this particular story to believe that that is the best way out. See, fear and depression have so overwhelmed the prophet that he would rather not carry on another moment. And instead, instead of doing what Elijah wants him to do, God gives him grace. Elijah falls asleep. This is so beautiful. He just takes a nap. This, then, quite unexpectedly, God sends an angel to him. And a couple of things happen in this interaction with this angel that, that expose this brilliant grace that God has for his prophet that just asked to kill himself. Because some of us in our modern mindset would want to critique Elijah and go, how dare you? That's wrong. How could you resort to that kind of language? How could you ask God to do that? But God doesn't do what you and I are compelled to do. Am I preaching to you yet? God does not do what we are often compelled to do. He extends grace to him. He sends an angel to him to grace Elijah's life, which I think is a really refreshing view of the intimacy of God, how he draws near to his people. Hear this. The first thing that God does for his weary people, and particularly he does for Elijah, is he just gives him rest. Can you imagine that? When he asks for this crazy thing, he doesn't throw out doctrine at him. He doesn't say, how dare you? I created you. Why would I kill you? He says, you seem really tired. Why don't you take a nap? Why don't you rest? Elijah just takes a nap. Secondly, there's connection. The angel actually touches him and speaks to him. 
Now, we might think this is like not a big deal, but the writer of 1 Kings thought it was important enough to write it down, that the angel touched him and speaks to him. And sometimes, isn't it true, that's all we need. Especially through the pandemic, when human touch was a far cry, week in and week out, the angel simply touched him and spoke to him. Sometimes we just need a hug. Can I get an amen? I just need a hug. No conversation, just need a hug. I just want you to acknowledge my presence physically. That's not everybody. So church, the huggers out there, that doesn't mean you now have license to go hug anybody that you want. Because sometimes what somebody wants is for you to stay way far away from them and talk to them from a distance, maybe texting distance, right? But sometimes you do just need a hug. We don't need a word from the Lord. I don't need to be reminded that I haven't quoted God perfectly or have asked for something that he won't give. Sometimes I just need a hug and conversation. I love that God knows that and gives it to him. But then perhaps most brilliantly, at least it's my favorite part, after there's rest and there's connection, there's nourishment. The angel gives him some cake and water. This detail seems completely innocuous. Like, we don't even need it, right? But it's there. He gives him some cake and water. See, sometimes you need rest. Sometimes you need a hug. Sometimes you need conversation. Sometimes you need carrot cake, right? Can I get a name? Sometimes you need some chocolate. Sometimes you just need a good meal, and you need a good drink, and you need fellowship. Your soul needs nourishing, but so does your body. I love that God knows that, and God extends that to him through an angel. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he falls asleep again. He gets another nap. And when he wakes up a second time, the angel touches him again, speaks to him again, gives him more cake and more water. He got two helpings of cake, two glasses of water, two naps. This is brilliant. It's in the Bible. So if you need, you might call it like a personal day, right? Or some self-care day. I call it 1 Kings 19, spiritual, biblical, theologically accurate day. I need cake, I need water, and I need two naps. After that, he goes to Horeb, and he waits in a cave. But church, let's not miss this. Let's think about this. God loves you so much that sometimes his grace is extended to you in the simplest of pleasures, like physical touch, a conversation, some cake, a drink, and a nap. Let that settle in. Is that who you know your God to be? See, I know many of you, many of us, Trust that God loves us so much he sent his one and only son to die in our place and for our sins. But I wonder if you know he loves you so much that he'll let you take a nap. Isn't it amazing that sometimes we have a God who like, he'll move heaven and earth to send his one and only son, but I've got too much work to do to let him just give me a nap, to let me enjoy fellowship and friendship and a hug. I know you've got a lot to do. I know a lot of people are depending on you. But do you know that kind of grace? Do you know that kind of God? Does it unsettle your religious heart to get a vision of grace like that? See, after all of this, in his fear and depression, in his anger, his weariness, his isolation, God asks Elijah a question, which is also an incredible grace, isn't it? 
Questions in general, I think, are pretty fantastic, but it's especially when God asks a question that it is the cultivation of intimacy and of relationship. If the God who knows all things can do all things and can interpret and understand anything that he desires, if he asks us a question, he's not asking because he doesn't know, he's asking because he wants to be close. He's asking because he wants to extend grace. And so he asks the prophet in 1 Kings 19.9, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> what are you doing here? It's like, I mean, like you direct me here, you gave me the cake, the angel, like you told me to come here, like, you know, he's probably going back in his head. But instead, here's what Elijah says. I have been very jealous for you, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it. This is what Paul quotes in Romans 11. Elijah thinks everyone is awful. He thinks everyone has abandoned God. Notice the language that he chooses. This is, and, and perhaps you can notice this from some of your relationships and the way that you speak to others. He says, the people of Israel. In other words, your people. All your people, everyone. They broke promises. They have disrespected your holiness. They have murdered your messengers. And now they are trying to kill me. But what's Elijah say about himself? Oh, I have been jealous for you, Lord. All the time. I've been jealous for the Lord of hosts. That's Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the armies. He's even using like this very clear doctrinal language, right? Everyone has rejected you, Elijah says, but me. Between the lines, I wonder if you can hear what Elijah's really saying. Smite them, almighty smiter. I haven't abandoned you, but they have. Get rid of them. It can just be us. We, we know what the relationship, what the covenant's about. They don't. They have rejected you, unlike me, now reject them. It's vital for us to not move too quickly. We read the scriptures way too quickly, don't we? It's vital that we see how judgmental Elijah is being. God has showered him with grace. Over and over again, he has showered him with grace. But Elijah has these clear expectations for his fellow believers. He has expectations for God. Did you notice that? Here's what they were supposed to do, and they didn't. Now, here's what you need to do. Are you going to? And when those expectations are not met, he is not curious. He is not humble. He is not gracious. He doesn't ask God a single question. He makes an observation, and then he pronounces judgment. I wonder if this is true of your heart and mine. There's something in this for us. Difference disagreement and unmet expectations should make us ask questions, not pronounce judgment, especially in the family of God, especially in the family of God, church in the square. There is a deep-seated fear. There is a deep-seated belief that he is accepted to God based upon his works of righteousness. Therefore, he can judge others based on theirs or lack thereof. See, if you think you have become part of the family of God because of your righteousness, you will never stop judging other people for theirs or their lack of it. If you think that's why you're here, if I think that's why I'm here. See, the hard truth of the matter is that Elijah has experienced the grace of God with naps and cake and, and water and touch and conversation, but his heart is still filled with judgment. Judgment is the fruit of a works-based righteousness. Judgment is the product of shame. Judgment is the result of believing relationship with God is transactional. Judgment comes from disdaining and distrusting grace. 
This is what grace exposes. When we get close to it, I wonder if you've experienced this. All of a sudden, this is what someone's settling to me about grace. It reveals the judgment in my heart. Because I know all the reasons why I don't, I shouldn't get grace, why you shouldn't get grace, but at the same time, why I should get it and you shouldn't. Do you see how messy we are with grace? It's because there's judgment in our hearts. And God responds to Elijah in perhaps a pretty brilliant way. <laughs> Not perhaps, but it is. And I think it helps us because I think sometimes when we see judgment, when we see inconsistencies, we go, all right, I need to do something different. But before you make a plan for what you should do, I think we should watch how God responds to Elijah. God responds to Elijah, not with a word, but in a demonstration. He has Elijah stand on a mountain. So he doesn't correct him, right? I'm so prone to just go, that was the wrong thing to ask. Here's what you need to ask next time. Shame on you. Get in the corner. You need a timeout right? No more profiting for you for, you know, I don't know, at least half hour, no screen time. And the Lord passes by him four times as he stands there. The first time he passes by, it's a great and strong wind. But the writer of Kings, First Kings tells us that the Lord was not in the wind. The second time, God goes by as an earthquake, but he was not in the earthquake. The third time, he passes as a, as a fire, and he says, but he's not in the fire. Finally, he passes as what? A low whisper or a thin slice, or what the King James Version says, a still, small voice. And God was in that voice. The Lord revealed himself to Elijah in the still, small voice, in the gentle whisper. What's the point? Well, Elijah has just asked God to reject his people. He just asked God to come in a great wind of wrath. He just asked God to come in a hurricane, or rather an earthquake of consequence. He has just asked God to come in a fire of justice. But God says he will come in a low whisper. He will come with grace. God did not reject his people. Later in the passage, it says he left a remnant. See, the authenticity of grace teaches us that grace persists personally, theologically, and historically. The exposure of grace reveals judgment in our hearts. And having seen the judgment, we are reminded again of how greatly in need we are of grace. In other words, what, what God is telling Elijah is, I am going to come to my people the same way I met you at the tree. I'm going to come to all of those bad people that you think you're better. I'm going to come to them the same way I came to you in grace. See, I think when we see this need exposed, we don't just need another dose or action of grace. What we need is the incarnation of grace itself. We need grace in the flesh. What Paul is telling us by employing, I think, the story of Elijah is really quite simple, yet it's easy to mistake or miss. He concludes in the passage in Romans 11, verse 5 and 6. Look at it with me. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul says, so too. He's gone into history and he's back into the present time as there was a remnant preserved by God in Elijah's day. So too, Paul says, there's a remnant in Rome. So too, those who were chosen in Elijah's day were chosen by grace. So too, those who were chosen in Paul's day have been chosen by grace. So too, those who have received righteousness and come to know Jesus in our day have been chosen by grace. As they were chosen in Elijah's day and in Paul's day, so too they are chosen in ours. Many in Paul's audience, perhaps many in this audience, would expect that God would come in a great wind, 
or in an earthquake or a fire. Perhaps you're even waiting for him to do that. You're seeing the church like act a crazy fool right now, and you're just like, that earthquake sounds really good about now, right? It takes three seconds on any social media stream of your choosing to just go, man, fire would be dope. Like, let's just clean this mug out, right? They expected him to come through piety, through the law, through religious affiliation. Specifically, they expected the Messiah to come and stick it to the governing powers of the day and bring Israel back into visible, physical prominence that he would reject the Gentiles and restore the Jews. I want to submit to you that longing we have today was the longing that the people of God had back in the day. For God just to come in and clean shop. I wonder how you expect God to come. You might expect God to come through the GOP, that as conservative values take hold of our city, so too the kingdom of God, or our country, so too the kingdom of God. You may expect him to come through progressivism, that as more democratic policies pass, more of God's love and grace will be expressed in this world. Perhaps you expect him to come through white people, or black people, or Mexican or Filipino people, or the exact right number of each of the ethnicities and cultures represented in a particular demographic or place. Do you see, like Elijah, we have expectations. We have a roadmap for the kingdom that we put, this is what it is going to look like. This is how God is going to move. And just like both Elijah and Israel, this exposes judgment. And it leads us to judgment. Why? Because God never shows up in our preconceived and religious notions of righteousness. God comes through grace. Every time. He comes with a touch, with a conversation, with some cake, with some water, and a couple of naps. He comes through a low whisper. Do you see? God's grace comes through his son. Jesus is the low whisper. Jesus is grace in the flesh. And Jesus is this low whisper that he did not come in a great wind, nor in an earthquake, nor in fire. What had he come? In the flesh. He came as a baby. He came as a baby human, the son of an obscure Middle Eastern family. This is Jesus' point about himself when he is speaking to a Jewish scholar, Nicodemus. In John 3, Jesus tells him, for God so loved the world, I wonder if you've heard it, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here it is, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came in a little whisper. He came with grace. The Son did not come to condemn, smite, or reject the world. He did not come to reject His people. He didn't come to reject you. He didn't come to reject me. He came in subtlety, in humility, in a whisper, in a touch, in conversation, in dessert, in water. He came in love and He came to save. This unsettles us if we are wrapped up in religion. This unsettles us when we are judgmental. This unsettled Paul's Jewish kinsmen and his readers. It unsettled Elijah, and I wonder, does it still unsettle you? See, grace is not the disregard of truth and justice. Grace is the exchange of burdens. The giver of grace takes the burden of the guilty and of the shameful from the receiver of grace and leaves with that receiver the light burden of love and forgiveness. You see, grace is actually where justice meets generosity, where truth meets love. This is why 
in 2 Corinthians 5 that said, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's grace. He didn't overlook sin. He didn't downplay reality, truth, or justice. He took the shame and sin on himself and then gave you grace. I wonder what it would look like if we were actually a church that loved grace, that we gave it out, prodigality, like just crazy amounts of grace. We received it with joy, and we watched it and we celebrated it. I don't know if that person deserved it, but I know I didn't, so yay, grace. I love when I see grace. Do you see grace, church? I think this is why we fear it. We fear that grace is going to cost us. We fear that grace will withhold from us. But the gospel is literally the announcement that the cosmic cost, which we are so terrified to pay, has already been paid. Within the person of Christ, we don't see fear and absence and judgment. What do we see? The incarnation of grace and truth at the same time. So may we bring these unsettled souls to our Savior. May we confess that we have had a judgmental spirit. May we be honest about our fear, and may we actually enjoy grace, whether in a piece of cake or a nap or in a still, small voice or in the salvation of a person that we think is completely undeserving because neither are we. May we embrace the one ultimately who is grace in the flesh. Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, it's pretty incredible when we just consider the simplicity and beauty of your character. I so quickly think about grace and move on, and yet that causes me to not have to face the judgment in my heart. Forgive me. Forgive me for so quickly despising others because there's fear in my heart. Or judging others with a kind of framework that I believe justifies myself. Forgive me for the way I do that to my neighbors in Logan Square. Forgive me for the ways I do that with my sisters and brothers. Forgive me for the ways I do that of other churches. Or when I just simply see someone's name scroll across a social media page, how quickly I am to choose judgment. I pray for my sisters and my brothers. Would we confess our sin and know that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we might be a people who are grounded and founded in grace. Oh, the world has never seen that. The world has never seen a people fully surrendered to your grace and truly in love with the gospel and the Lord of grace. Help us, Father, what a joy it is to be yours. Because you are a God who forgives and restores and then sends out on mission. And of all the things that we would be known by, would grace be at the top of that list? We don't always know what that will cost us in terms of what we might call precious right now or what might feel comfortable, but we know that you are worthy. And so we ask that you would help us to be a people of grace as you are most assuredly a God now, forever and always of grace. So we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.